0: Please turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 4, 1 Samuel chapter 4. As you turn there, I just want to encourage you, as as Mike did, to to come out for our Christmas Eve service and look forward to to worshiping together. As you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 4, just, just know that we're turning to a section of Samuel, that some call the, the Ark narrative. There's a ser- series of chapters here in which we're dealing with the Ark of the Covenant and seeing what it looks like whenever the, the manifestation of, of God's glory to depart from the people. And so we're going to, to see some things over the next few weeks as we, we look at this narrative. Actually, th- this morning we're here in First Samuel chapter 4, and then next week Uh, Pastor Kent is going to be sharing uh, from God's Word, preaching on Christmas Day, and uh, it's actually going to be Pastor Kent's last Sunday as a full-time staff member as a pastor, so uh, real privilege to be able to uh, have him uh, open God's Word to us, and and then in the the spring uh, he's going to go uh, part-time, and so be sure to encourage him in in that. And so he's going to be bringing God's Word to us, Lord willing, next week, and then As we begin January, we're going to spend three weeks doing an overview of the book of Lamentations. And so we're going to begin the new year with lament. And we'll talk about why that's an important thing to do. And so hopefully that will be encouraging. And then after that, uh, Tommy VanderWalt, our missionary in South Africa, is going to be opening God's word to us. And then we're going to be back and look at the uh, chapters 5 and 6 in 1 Samuel as we continue talking about the ark of the covenant in these these ark uh, chapters so some some exciting things as we open God's word together over the next few weeks this this morning I would encourage you to prepare your hearts as we prepare to partake of the Lord's supper as we come to the Lord's table here at the end of our our service together and if you haven't grabbed uh, the elements, as you as you came in, you may do that when we stand here in just a moment. There's, there's some at the, on, those, on those tables. Communion is open to all believers uh, who are in a right relationship with Christ's church. Uh, so you don't have to be a member of this church, although we encourage you to be a member of a church. And we do ask that you be a believer. Uh, you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, to partake in the Lord's uh, Supper with us. This is a, a feast for uh, the church. And so we encourage you to uh, participate in that if you're a believer. 1 Samuel chapter 4, we're going to be looking at the verses 1 through 22, though the whole chapter this morning. So if you're able to, if you want to stand with me in honor of God as we read his word. Verse 1, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, "'Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies.' And so the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. The two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. lest ye become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phineas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and Dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was ninety eight years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? And he who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phineas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backwards from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel for 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, "'Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son.' But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, "'The glory has departed from Israel,' Because the ark of God had been captured, because her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. You may be seated. May God encourage us through the reading of his word this morning. Father, we are mindful of your glory, your presence with us this morning. We pray that we would be in awe as we contemplate you and your goodness, your holiness, your kindness, your mercy, your wrath over anger, your wrath over sin, your your anger at unrighteousness, your mercy, your everlasting steadfast love. We pray this in the name of your Son Jesus. Amen. Recently, uh, Whitney, Noah, and I were in the kitchen talking, and and I was at the sink and I was rinsing off some some dishes and. And Noah was here, and, and Whitney was behind me, and, the, and they were talking, and I, I thought of something that I thought was kind of funny to say. I, I can't, can't remember exactly what it was, but it was very witty. And uh, I was rinsing off the dishes, and, and I, I said it was just like a sentence or two. And, and I, I feel like I have a pretty good gauge uh, on what Whitney finds funny. After 23 years of marriage, I kind of know what she's going to laugh at and what she's not going to laugh at. Sometimes I misgauge how funny I think she'll find something. I, I often think she's going to find it more funny than she does. But, but generally, I know what she's going to laugh at and what she's not going to. So I said this thing, crickets, right? So, okay, maybe she didn't hear me because <laughs> it was pretty funny, and so I, I said it again, Nothing. Turn off the water and I I turn around, and and there's Noah, and and Whitney is gone. And I said to Noah, No mom again, huh? He said, No mom again. It's not a rare thing to happen for me to be talking to Whitney and find that she is no longer in the room. Uh, Whitney is a fast mover, I am a slow mover and a slow talker. And so oftentimes, I'll be talking and suddenly realize I'm talking to an empty room. Maybe some of you do this as well. What I want to suggest this morning is is what I hope is sobering to us to think about. It is possible that we could sing and pray and preach to an empty room and not even realize it. I don't mean there won't be, be people in here. Obviously, you and I would still be here. But I'm, I'm talking about the glory of God being absent. And I don't mean that he's not here in some way, because obviously God is, God is everywhere, and so he's always going to be present here in some way. But, but I mean it's possible for the glory of God to depart a place and for us to continue to, to think that he's still here and act like he's still here. By the, by the glory of God, I mean the, the manifestation of his presence, the, the awareness of his, his infinite goodness, in God and God in all his perfections. It is possible for that to depart from a place and for, for people to not even recognize that that's taken place. As we think about the text this morning, here's the main idea that I want us to think about as we look at 1 Samuel chapter 4, as as the ark of God departs. True worship of God is the response of our whole being as we rightly contemplate the infinite perfection of our triune God. What is true worship? True worship is the response of our whole being as we Rightly contemplate as we rightly think about the infinite perfection of our triune God now there's there's two things that I want you to notice about that statement first of all, notice that there's there's contemplation there's there's thinking right thinking about who God is, and then the second thing not is there just not only is there contemplation or meditation there's also response notice that there's a a response to that contemplation now if you if you take out either of those two components, you no longer have true biblical worship, do you? In other words, if you just have response, just have the motions of worship, that's not true worship because there has to be someone that we're worshiping. We need to be thinking about who that is. So apart from contemplation, just response, that's not true worship. But also just thinking about God is not worship. Just studying Scripture is not worship if there's no response. But true worship takes place when we are thinking about who God is and thinking rightly about who God is, and then we are responding to that truth about who we know, about, who we know that God is. With our, our whole being, body, uh, emotions, mind, our soul, we're, we're responding to those, those truths about God. You lose either of those, we've lost worship. Now, as we think about worship, before we look at the text, I also want to say a couple things about worship, right? Worship can, first of all, have a very broad definition. When we talk about worship, we can mean just like all of our life is worship. All of our life is thinking about who God is and and responding rightly to that. Uh, Romans chapter 12 talks about our whole bodies being offered to God as a living sacrifice. It's our, our spiritual act of worship. And so no matter where we are, we should be thinking about who God is and responding to that truth. So if we're at school, what are we doing? We're, we're thinking about who God is and we're responding to that. If we're at work, we're doing that. If we're here in church, we're doing that. No matter where we are, we're, we're engaged in worship, or we should be, rightly thinking about God and responding to that, those truths that we know about who God is. But not only when we talk about worship do we mean it in a broad sense, but we also, when we use the word worship, sometimes mean it in a more narrow sense, like God's people coming together on the Lord's Day to worship Him together, to respond to the truths about who we know God is as a body, responding to that with, with worship. So, with all that as background, here's, here's the question I want to ask you this morning. If God's glory were to leave us, would we notice? If God's glory were to depart this place, would it affect our worship? So the, the manifestation of God and his infinite goodness and all his, his infinite perfections, if, if that were, we're no longer aware of that, if God's glory in that sense left this place, would we be aware if the, the Spirit were no longer revealing to us who God is as we look at his word together, would we notice or would we just kind of continue not even realizing that that anything had happened? The structures of worship can remain in a place where worship itself has ceased. You can continue to sing, you can continue to, to pray, you can continue to, to preach, and God's glory can have departed. That's the reality. and the text that we're looking at this morning, the, the ark has departed, the, the visible manifestation of, of God's presence, it's, it's no longer there. And what we see as we look at chapter 4 is that God's presence has actually left long before. There's a, a woman who at the end of the chapter says, the glory has departed from Israel. But really, it's not that the Ark of the Covenant leaves and then the glory departs. In reality, the glory of God had left long before and the departure of the Ark is just a symptom of what's already taken place. So what I wanna do this morning is I wanna look at seven characteristics of worship among a people from whom the glory of God has departed. These are seven things that are true of, of worship where God's glory is, is no longer present. And I, I'm gonna share these things hopefully in, in such a way that, that will be ultimately encouraged, right? Because I know that for those of us who love God, we, we want to worship him rightly. And we want to recognize signs that his glory has departed, signs of, of worship where God's glory is not being recognized. We want to, to recognize those, those characteristics and worship differently. I hope as we share these things together this morning, looking at 1 Samuel chapter 4, a people from whom the glory of God has departed, I hope as we share these things, our hearts will be warmed and will draw even closer to the God whom we love. True worship. Of God is a response of our whole being as we rightly contemplate the infinite perfection of our triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Here's the first characteristic of worship among a people from whom the glory of God has departed. Number one, a refusal to repent of sin, a refusal to repent of sin. Look at the text with me. We begin in verse 1, and and the first part of verse 1 actually goes with chapter 3. The word of Samuel came to all Israel. That's something that we talked about as we were in chapter 3. And and then really our story begins in the next part of verse 1. It says, now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. Now, this is the first time the Philistines have been mentioned in Samuel. Remember, we looked at the Philistines when we were in the book of Judges. The Philistines are going to come up over and over again. I think they're mentioned 185 times in Samuel. Samuel. But what, who are the Philistines? The Philistines were a group of sea people. They had been from Asia Minor and, and some of the islands in the Mediterranean, and they had, had migrated to the to the edge of, the, the, of Canaan. Okay, so they're there on the, the coast, so the, uh, the the western part of Canaan, and they begin to to push toward the east, and they run up right against the Israelites, and so. Israel is kind of pushing west, the Philistines are pushing east, and there's there's conflict. It says that there's a, a battle that takes place. And as a result of the battle, there's defeat. You see that in verse 2, that Israel was defeated before the Philistines. It killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And that is talking about these, these different units of Of soldiers that are destroyed, and it says the people come to the camp, and the elders of Israel ask a very good question. Look at the question they ask in verse 3. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? The question they ask is good. Their answer is not good. They rightly recognize that this is this is the hand of the Lord in this, right? That if God was for them, they, they would have won the battle. That if, if God had been present, they, they would have been victorious over their enemies. And the answer to why they were defeated has already been revealed to them by the Lord. Remember in the book of Deuteronomy 28, God told them, look, uh, if you disobey, God will I will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. We saw that in judges chapter ten, and so it's it's frustrating that they ask the right question, but they don't recognize the answer. The answer is that they need to repent and yet, as we're going to see as we continue to go on there's 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 no mention of of a need to repent until we come to chapter seven and in chapter seven as they as they recognize that that God's presence has been departed from them in Chapter 7, Samuel's going to say, look, if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, then what do you have to do? Put away the foreign gods. Serve him only. And uh, he says that there are two. And then in chapter 7, we've sinned against the Lord, the, the people say. But it's not until chapter 7 that they come to that conclusion. So as they, as they are here in chapter 4, there's a refusal to repent. What is this? This is a sign that the glory of God is absent from a people. refusal to repent of your sin is a sure sign that God is not present in nor the object of our worship. You say, Daniel, how, how can you say that? Well, well, two thoughts here. If God is present in your worship, you are going to see some things about yourself. In other words, if God's glory, if you're considering God and his infinite perfection and goodness, if you're thinking about God, you're going to be aware very quickly of some things about yourself and your own unworthiness. Whenever I was a youth pastor in Texas, I, was, I thought I was really good at basketball. But it turns out I was just tall, right? Compared to the middle schoolers that I was working with, right? Uh, you don't have to be very good at basketball if you're a lot taller than the people you're playing with. Um, and if you're in Texas, it's, it's not as competitive here. And we then moved to Illinois and, and I played basketball with the high schoolers and some of the middle schoolers that were, you know, I don't know, maybe they're taller here in, in the Midwest or something. I went back to Texas, and the, I was talking to some of the kids in the youth group that I was a part of. They said, hey, how's, how's Illinois? And we're talking about how good it was. Say, are, are you still dominating in basketball? I said, I have some bad news. Um, I am not very good at basketball at all, which means you're terrible. Um yeah. <laughs> I'm just taller than you, you know? If you compare yourself to, to, to other people and, and the areas that you want to compare, you're not forced to ask yourself hard questions about yourself, are you, right? Recently, a, a friend said, hey, uh, Daniel, d- do you want some honest feedback? That's what I said. <laughs> and then he, he started sharing it. I said, I didn't say yes yet, right? Let, let me Let me gear myself sometimes we don't we don't want to ask ourselves hard questions about ourselves it's it's easy it's easy to to shield ourselves from the truths about who we are it's easy to avoid unpleasant thought about ourselves if god's glory is not present but what happens whenever god's glory is present when I'm considering God and all his mercy and his kindness and his, his patience and, and I'm, I'm aware of him, I become very aware of my own lack. That's one thing. That's why I say that, that a lack of repentance of sin is a sign that God is not present because we're forced to confront ourselves, but also if God is present, what happens? I, I, I see some things about him. In other words, True worship of God isn't just talking about how bad I am. It's it's also seeing his goodness and that he's a God who desires to forgive. Listen to what Joel says in Joel chapter 2, verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. Why? Listen to this. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. If God is present in our worship and we are thinking about him, then two things are going, must happen simultaneously. I'm going to be aware of my own sinfulness, but if I'm, if I'm thinking about the right God, the true God, I'm going to be thinking about a God who desires to forgive, who, is, who, who draws me in and is, is gracious and abounds in steadfast love. In other words, if the God that you worship is so angry about your sin, he's not even sure he wants you to come into his presence, you are worshiping an idol. Because the true God, yes, absolutely desires us to recognize our sinfulness, but he also simultaneously yearns for us to come to him to receive his forgiveness, to be restored to the fullness of relationship. My encouragement to you as we think about this first characteristic, as you're aware of the presence of God in your worship, be in awe of his love and repent. One of my favorite Newer Christmas hymns is what? O come, all you unfaithful. This is the God we worship. So a refusal to repent of sin is a sign that God is not truly present in our worship. Another characteristic is a reliance on rituals and and relics. We see this in chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. The elders ask a good question. Why has God departed from us? And then they come up with a terrible solution. Listen to what they say. Let's get the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and, and let's bring it here, bring it from Shiloh, bring it here, and when it when it comes among us, it will save us. It will save us from the power of our enemies. So instead of saying God will save us, they say, let's get this object, bring the object here, refuse to repent, not think about the true God that it represents, And then we'll get saved. The Ark of the Covenant was this this gold-covered box. We'll talk more about it in a few weeks. It was uh, three and three-quarters feet long and and two and a quarter feet wide. It's inside the Ark of the Covenant. The tablets, the two tablets of the Ten Commandments were stored. In the Ark, or or perhaps nearby it at one point, was also Aaron's staff and uh, some of the manna from the time in the wilderness as a remembrance. The ark is a visible manifestation of God's presence with his covenant people. And they instead are treating it like a relic, an object that they can force God to do what they desire him to do. Be sure of this. A reliance upon rituals and a reliance upon objects to get God to do what you want him to do is another sure sign that he is not present in your worship. It reveals, a reliance on rituals and objects reveals that you see God as, as some sort of being who can be manipulated to, to do what you desire him to do. You say, well, Daniel, what do you mean? How does this work in our, our church today? Well, I think, it's, I think it's very prevalent. Sometimes there's a belief that some sort of objects like maybe a crucifix or a, a cross can, can bring good luck. Or we think about the sacramental system in, a, in the, the Roman Catholic uh, denomination that developed a very complex system by which the, the sacraments and, and you know, more sacraments than and Scripture mentions can kind of be manipulated to get God to, to do certain things. And there, there develops this, this system in which God and His grace are, are separated from one another, at least in practice. Or in our own church culture, maybe some of the cultures in which you grew up, there's a belief that if I'm, if I'm just good enough, my my good behavior will get God to do what I want him to do. If I believe the right thing, he'll, he'll do what I desire him to do. If I read my Bible in the right way, he'll give me the blessing that I desire. If I, I fast, he'll answer a prayer if I, I pray it in the right way. Or he'll, if I come to church, if I give financially, he'll bless me financially. In other words, God becomes this, this trinket that we can uh, have do what we want to do. He becomes an an it, like the it in verse 3. One person writes this, speaking on, on this verse, it says, whenever the church stops confessing, thou art worthy, and begins chanting, thou art useful, then you know the ark of God has been captured again. Brothers and sisters, as we encounter, here's, here's my, my point of application here, is you and I encounter that the true God in our worship, as we encounter the, the true and living God in our worship, we are going to, by necessity, forsake the silly idea that God can be forced to do anything. The silly idea, the, the, the heretical idea, the blasphemous idea that God can be used by us Instead, as we, as we encounter the true and living God, what do we say? We, we cry out, God, use me as you would desire for, for this. As the psalmist says, whom have I in heaven but you? And, and there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. You are not some means to an end. You are my end. When the glory of God is among his people, that's what we cry out. God, you are the great end for which I exist. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's what people who are truly encountering the presence of God cry out. That's a sign that God's worship is centered on Him. A third characteristic of worship where the the presence of God is departed is an ignorance of God's holiness. Thirdly, in, in ignorance of God's holiness is a sign that, that God is not present. Just a real quick note here in, in verse four. It says it says that the people sent to Shiloh, they brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts. And then notice this sentence, it says, who is enthroned on the cherubim. It's talking there about the reality that, that God isn't, with us, in, in the sense that He's on our level, there's an, an otherness to God, a holiness. The cherubim are, are those who are said to, to guard the, the the throne of God. And in Genesis three, they they serve as a barrier between the the, the, the sinful humanity and the, the Garden of Eden. We see the the separation that the cherubim represent, and on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, the, the cherubim are, are placed and they, they face one another, these, they're these angelic supernatural beings that represent that God is, is other, he's holy, he's absolutely committed to his own exaltation of his name, devoted recognizing the worth of his great name. When we fail to contemplate and think about the holiness of God in our worship, we can be certain God is not present. R.C. Sproul, in his book, The Holiness of God, argues that consideration of God's holiness, that is, God's absolute devotion to the worth of his name, is central to right and true worship. Listen to what he writes. He says, the idea of holiness is so central to biblical teaching that it is said of God, holy is his name. He goes on, if I were to ask a group of Christians what the top priority of the church is, I'm sure I would get a wide variety of answers. Some would say evangelism. Some would say social action or or so forth. But, But Sproul says this, God is inescapable. There is no place we can hide from him. Not only does he penetrate every aspect of our lives, but he penetrates it in his majestic holiness, Therefore, we must seek to understand what holy is. We dare not seek to avoid it. There can be no worship without it. Holiness defines our goal as Christians. God has declared, be holy, for I am holy. Apart from recognition that God is holy, we are not engaging in true worship. We come before the Lord. We recognize his holiness. Now, sometimes people have said this. They've said, okay, uh, I'm going to be aware of God's holiness when I come to worship, and so I'm going I'm to wear a tie because I'm, I'm in God's presence, right? Now, absolutely, wearing a tie can be an, an act of worship, okay? Not against ties for other people. Um, no, for me too. Not for, but there's more to it, right? It's, it's not just about wearing a, 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 it's a fruit of, of worship, not the cause, right? What do I mean? Well, our external appearance should always reflect a heart that's aware that we're in the presence of God. I mean, we should always be modest. We should always be careful that our, our clothing is not attracting attention to ourselves or our bodies. we being disrespectful. So it's not just about external appearances. Maybe, maybe this will help. Um, as our kids have gotten older, you know, they, they invite friends over to our house, which we love. And we tell them, look, anytime time that you wanna invite friends over to our house, great. We would love to have them come over. And, maybe give us a heads up. Like, a couple minutes would be nice, but if you can't give us a couple minutes, 30 seconds would be better. Uh, If you can't give us 30 seconds, at least as you come in the door, shout, hey, me and so and so are here, they'd just be helpful to know, okay? Um, Again, love to have, you. if you can't do that, we still have your friends to come over, but um, it might change some things that happen if we know people are in the house, you know, if if you come in and I, I don't know you're with someone, I, I might yell out, hey, uh, please be sure to take out the trash, and if, if if they, if I knew you had friends, I might not yell that, okay, I, I want to be real, but not too real, right, like sometimes people have, uh, sometimes kids have, have uh, gone home to their parents after visiting our house and say, hey, did, did you know Pastor Daniel watches TV? That's cool. Sometimes kids have come home and said, "Do you know I saw Pastor Daniel pajamas?" Less cool. Well, <laughs> let's let's see if we can avoid that, right? We want to be real. But the point is this: there's an awareness of the presence of someone else that affects your behavior, right? When I'm aware that that there are people present, it affects my behavior. When I'm aware of the presence of God it affects my behavior. As we worship God, our mind must be actively engaging in this reality. God is holy, and he is here. I'm not going to pretend that I can impress him with a nice dress. I'm not going to say silly things about God if I know that he's here. I'm not going to talk about how God is a cool dude or my buddy or the big guy upstairs. There's going to be a, an awareness of his holiness and reverence, and I'm going to be very careful about how I speak. I'm going to be careful about what my mind thinks about. I'm going to be careful of my response as I recognize a holy God is here. Yes, he is my father, and, and, my, and Christ is my brother, and the, the Spirit indwells me. And so I'm aware of the closeness and God's grace that I have with him, and so I'm not going to see him as some being who doesn't love me, but I'm also going to be very careful about how I talk about him as I consider his infinite perfections. That's a characteristic of being truly engaged in worship. A fourth characteristic, I changed this a little bit. I changed it a lot. Um, I changed it from talking about disqualified leaders to, to this, so your, your notes may be a little bit off, but the, the fourth characteristic is this, uh, an apathy towards God's word. We're gonna talk about more of this in a, in a couple of weeks, but just, just notice this in 4C, the fourth part of the, the verse, uh, the, or the part of verse four, it says this, It says, God is enthroned in the cherubim and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Hophni and Phinehas should have been nowhere near the Ark of the Covenant, right? And their presence there indicates that there's apathy towards God and his word. There's an incredible irony here. Remember, what is in the Ark of the Covenant? In the Ark of the Covenant, are the, the two tablets with the Ten Commandments on them. Hopney and Phinehas, as they hold the Ark of the Covenant, are, are walking contradictions. They do not treat God as holy. They blaspheme his name. They're engaged in, in adultery and lying and, and theft. There, there, is, there is complete apathy toward God and his word, and that is a sign that God's glory has, has departed You keep God's word in a prominent place. Here here you put it in a nice box, this beautiful box, but you're apathetic toward it. It's not true worship. We'll talk more about that in a couple weeks. Let's go on. A fifth characteristic, number five. Zeal for the wrong things. This is another sign that the glory of God has departed from true worship. Verse five. As soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. Now, if you just read that verse, apart from any context of the previous chapters or what's about to happen, you might think, oh, these people are really zealous for God. But but they aren't. I mean, there's a zeal here where the, the whole ground shakes with their excitement, but their zeal doesn't mean that they are in right covenant relationship with God. The covenant is going to be restored in verse seven. So what they're, or chapter 7, so what they're excited about is not truly God. God's presence has departed from the people, so zeal for the wrong things doesn't mean you're zealous for God. The presence of zeal or emotion, even a a ton of emotion, doesn't mean God is present. It is possible to have an emotional experience. It is possible to to shake the walls of a room with your singing and have zero engagement with the living God. I want to say this carefully because no one, hear hear me say this, hopefully very graciously, no one does this perfectly, right? No one worships god perfectly on a sunday morning no one no church worships god with absolute perfection at bethany community church we do not worship god with perfection we want to we want to grow in that we're we're talking you know there there are things we've i think we're doing better than we were doing five years ago and and there's some things we're continuing to to think about you know just thinking this morning about repentance are there some ways we incorporate repentance into our Sunday morning worship more faithfully? Are there some things we could do? There's all sorts of things that we could do more faithfully, and we want to, and we're gonna grow in that by God's grace. And so in, in five years, wouldn't it be great if we're worshiping God better than we are today? And in five more years, even we're gonna grow. But, but I'll tell you this, um, I've had conversations, and I, I think about conversations with two or three families some years ago who were at a, not at Bethany at a different church, but a really good church in our area. As I was talking with them, they were talking about leaving that church to go to another church that, that I knew wasn't as faithful in, in being obedient to God in the areas of worship. And I, and I said, well, why are you doing that? I said, well, just, you know, just there's this feeling that I have at this other church that I just get more excited. I just feel more, just feel more alive there. And, and I said, well, you know, that that church is they're singing songs that are just like rock songs that aren't even about God to begin their worship service. Yeah, but as I sing them, I just feel like I'm worshiping. Well, I'm not going to disagree there, but let me suggest to you, if if you're worshiping and you're singing some song that has nothing to do with, with God and yet, yet you say, you're telling me you're worshiping, I'm going to agree with you but suggest to you that your worship's idolatrous. That's not God that you're worshiping. Now my concern, again, I hope I'm saying this graciously, my, my concern is, because all of us can grow in this area, right? My concern is that when we're zealous, but we're zealous for forms of worship that violate what God's, God says his worship should do, we're worshiping, but, but God's glory is not present. I was talking with a, had this conversation many times about different things that should take place in the auditorium the worship center while we worship so for example uh someone said to me some time ago we, you know we should we should dim the lights more whenever we're singing okay nothing wrong i, I don't know the uh <laughs> what lumens what brightness and a level reflects the absolute best glory of god. You know, i'm not but they said we should do that um so i'm not distracted by the other people in the room it's just like me and god there i said well so the best way to do corporate worship is to not see anybody. <laughs> that's not what corporate worship is supposed to be. Now again, I'm not saying that the, there has to be a certain level of brightness. I'm saying the, the goal, we need to think about what is, what's my goal in worship? And if my goal in worship is to have the light so low I can't see other people and be aware that anyone else is there, that's not good. That's not what corporate worship is supposed to be. We want to do things in the worship service with excellence, right? Uh, Whitney recently, uh, she's had hearing loss most, if not all, of her life. And she recently was able to get hearing aids. And, and she kind of brought this, this home to me when she was talking to me recently. She, she said um, she was in wor- the worship service here at Bethany for the first time with her hearing aids. And she said it, it just brought tears to her eyes. As she was able to to hear the the fullness of of the music and, and the people singing, and proclaiming truths about the glory of God together. That's what our zeal should be about. Fast tempo of worship or slow tempo, you may find yourself having a variety of opinions, and and all those things are fine. But as long as we're with other believers hearing the word, singing the word, seeing the word with with the sacraments of the Lord's supper and baptism, as long as we're seeing, having those things take place, what are we going to be? We're going to be zealous because our zealous is going to be for the Lord and not for the secondary things. Sixth characteristic of of, uh, God's worship not being present in worship is a creation of a self-made religion. And we're going to come back to this again at the end of the ark narrative in a few weeks. So let me just say this. As you look at verses 6 through 9, what you see is the, the Philistines responding to this emotional response by Israel. And you recognize that, that in their interactions, the Philistines and, and, the, and the Israelites, the Philistines know some things about God, but the Israelites have, have so messed up their worship of God, that the Philistines don't even rightly know who the God that the Israelites worship is. They've practiced, the Israelites have practiced what's called syncretism, taking some truths about God and some truths about the Canaanite religions, and they've kind of just pumped those together, and they call it worship. Whenever we create our own religion, God pr- is not present in our worship. His glory has departed. But again, we'll talk about more of that in a few weeks. Here's the last characteristic I want us to think about this morning. What else happens as we engage in this type of worship? There, becomes, there, there comes a realization that God's glory has long since departed. A realization that God's glory has long since departed. He is not present and has not been present for a long time. Israel is defeated in verse 10. They, they flee. There's a great slaughter The ark of God is captured. The two sons of Eli are are killed. And this guy from Benjamin runs some 20 miles, comes back to Shiloh where Eli is, and his clothes are torn and there's there's dirt on his head. He's in mourning and Eli is sitting by the gate. He's been worried about the ark. And you you see here as as the narrative continues, the real blow for Eli is the loss of the ark of the covenant. Eli asks how the battle has gone and, and the person responds. He says, there's been a great defeat and your, your two sons are, are dead, verse 17, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli falls backward from his seat by the side of this, the gate. His neck is broken and he dies. And the text tells us he was old and heavy. He had judged Israel for 40 years. Then we come to Phinehas' wife, this moment that should have been a moment of joy for her is this now when the the a baby is born now turns into this moment of profound grief. She dies as she gives birth, and and the women tell her, "Hey, you're going to have a son," and and she doesn't even answer or pay attention. And in verse 21, she says this: she says the child, she it says that she named the child Ichabod, which means "what glory" or "there is no glory," and and she says because the the glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she says, the glory of God has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. But as I suggested earlier, she gets the sequence wrong. It's not that God's glory was there, then the ark has departed and then God's glory is gone. God's glory has been gone and and the Ark of the Covenant being captured is just a a symptom of what's already taken place. It can sometimes take a bit of time to recognize that God's glory has, has gone long after it it's departed. Let me give you an illustration here, and, and I hope again this is uh, done in love. One of the things that happened over the last century in the last century is, um, it continues today, individual churches, individual churches, lo- local bodies, realize that a denomination has, has left the faith. And sometimes it takes them a long time to, to realize that. So you see this with the mainline denominations. They, they say, okay, God has ceased to truly even worship. We need to leave. I, I believe this is happening right now in the United Methodist Church. You know, There are some very faithful Methodist people and pastors, and, and let me take some heat for them perhaps, uh, some of these, these faithful pastors who are trying to help their church. They're, they may be trying to lead their church in more biblical directions, and I would just tell you, if, if you're part of the Methodist Church or part of the Methodist Church that's trying to leave the United Methodist Church denomination, it's is—it's long past time to go. The glory has departed. Now, there's an issue that's causing a discussion right now. It's the fact that a lot in the United Methodist Church wanna call same-sex relationships marriage, but really the problems go far, far deeper than that, don't they? There are those in the denomination that are denying the deity of Christ. There's some that are denying that the resurrection has taken place. And and there's some within this this denomination that say, look, we want to have a big tent. But I would suggest to you, I would tell you this. Your tent has gotten so big that that God is no longer welcome in it. The glory has departed. I say this again in in love. God is no longer there. All the the characteristics of counterfeit worship are, are there. Refusal to repent of sin. Reliance on on rituals and and relics instead of relationship with God. Complete ignorance of God's holiness. A a zeal for the wrong things. Apathy toward his word. Self-made. All these things are present. And again, this isn't to bash our Methodist brothers and sisters who are faithful to the Lord. It's It's to illustrate that it's possible for the glory of God to leave a place before we've realized it. And if it's true for our Methodist brothers and sisters, it can be true for us as well. We must Be zealous for God. It's possible for God's glory to depart before we realize it. True worship of God is the response of our whole being as we rightly contemplate the infinite perfections of our triune God. And he's so kind to us. He's so kind to us, isn't he? Our worship doesn't have to be perfect (laughs) to be pleasing to God we we want it to be perfect we want to grow in it but, but god in his kindness welcomes us as we come to him in faith i think about hezekiah in second chronicles remember in second chronicles where the, the 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 people aren't cleansed and, and they can't Observe the Passover as as, has been prescribed, and it says that Hezekiah prayed for them, and he said, May the the good Lord pardon everyone who sets his heart to seek God, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of his father, even though not according to all the rules of cleanness. And it says what in verse 20? The Lord heard Hezekiah, and he healed the people. Here's the point. As we talk about these characteristics of God's glory departing to people, we're warned and we say, okay, God, I don't want those those things to be true of me, and yet as I look at those, I recognize there's not a thing on there that sometimes isn't true of me. And so what do I do? I'm brought again to a point of repentance. And again, what do I do? I think about who God is and who is God. He is a God who's loving and faithful, and merciful, and holy, and good, and I am not. And so I contemplate who that is, and I don't just think about that. I respond with my whole being, and I say, God, here I am. I'm relying not upon my own righteousness as I come to worship you. I am relying upon the righteousness of your son, Jesus. I turn from sin. I turn from these attitudes that do not recognize you or your glory, and I come and I ask for your forgiveness, for your love, for your mercy, I praise your name for you are a great God and your glory will be manifest over the whole world as the the water covers the ocean. I want us to think about that now as we come to the Lord's table. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul tells us some things about the Lord's table and, and maybe this morning as we're thinking about worship you'd say boy you know as i think about my own lack of of worthiness and god's absolute perfection maybe i shouldn't even take the lord's supper this morning 1st corinthians 11:28 says let a, a person examine himself then and, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup and many people come to 1st corinthians 11:28 and say well if i'm supposed to examine myself and as I examine myself, I find sin there. Maybe I shouldn't come to the Lord's table. Let me, let me offer you these words of encouragement. 1 Corinthians 11:28 28 is, is not designed for a person to read and, and come to the conclusion they should not participate in the Lord's Supper, usually. It says, examine yourself and then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. In other words, we examine ourselves and we recognize sin. We re- and, and as we come to the Lord's table, it reminds us to, to repent and, and to come to God. The Lord's table is a means of grace to help us, not to drive us further away from the Lord. Michael Horton puts it this way. He says, the supper is a means of grace for the weak, not a reward for the strong. Uh, Richard Barcellus writes this in, in his book, is, uh, More Than a mem- uh, Memory. He says, uh, more than a mem- I can't remember the name of the book, actually. Uh, more Than a Memorial, More Than a Memory. He says this, the, the Lord's Supper is a means of grace for weak souls which need to be strengthened. Just as we would never tell believers to stop reading their Bibles because they had a bad week or stop praying because they are not holy enough or feel unworthy, we should not forbid the supper under normal circumstances. The supper is a joy and a hope-inducing ordinance. It gives us renewed confidence that our sins are forgiven, that Christ is ours, and we are his and there's an expectation as we take of the Lord's Supper, of more to come. And so, I'd ask you now to to bow your heads with me as we prepare to take of the Lord's Supper. And let's pray, Heavenly Father. This morning we are aware of our sin. We don't come to your table to your to, to Christ's table. With arrogance. We don't want to come in an unworthy manner, believing that we should demand a seat at the table because of our own goodness. We come aware of our sin. And now, Father, we, we just take a moment confessing our sin to you and and re- wanting to receive your joy at the table with, with reliance upon you and, and your the work of your son Jesus, re- receiving that the free gift not just eternal life, but the, the free gift of, of sanctification, of continuing to, to grow in our holiness. So Father, we just take a moment confessing and giving thanksgiving to you. Father, we confess Your Word to You this morning, reminding ourselves as we tell You that You will never cast us out, that all who who come to You receive Your forgiveness. We praise Your name. We praise You for our great and glorious salvation We praise you in the name of your Son, Jesus, through the enabling of the Spirit. Amen.